Galatians. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to Galatians 4. And we're going to read quite a big chunk of Galatians 4. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope that won't, you can stay with me through that. And just so you know, if you have not been around or you don't know the book of Galatians so well, the background to this letter that Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, not just to a singular church, is that uh, the Galatian Christians are Gentiles. They are non-Jewish believers. The gospel was broken out of Jerusalem into other areas of that part of the world. And so non-Jewish people are getting saved, giving their lives to Jesus. And Paul has been planting churches, teaching them about grace, the grace of God. Uh, but since he has moved on to plant other churches, uh, Jewish Christians have turned up, teachers have turned up, and are starting to teach something different that looks similar, but actually, Paul says, it's, it's actually not the gospel at all. It's, it's a slight deviation, but, it's, but actually that deviation is so significant that he's going, this is no gospel at all. What you're now believing is not what I taught you. And effectively, what they're teaching them is, it's good to believe in Jesus, but basically, with that, you need to add some additional things. To really be accepted, to really be in, to really be considered part of the family, actually grace alone, God's forgiveness through Jesus, is not on its own sufficient. You need to add some stuff. And now we don't live in a world where I don't, I'm pretty certain that none of us have been taught that we need to become Jewish to be Christians. We need to add in Jewish customs. But I suspect most of us are prone to the belief that actually just believing Jesus is enough is not quite enough. Numbers of us in the room will feel either explicitly or implicitly this tendency to feel that actually I need to do some other things. I need to add some things into my life to be fully accepted. God is not pleased. He may have forgiven me, but he's not really pleased with me. He's not a welcoming father. He's a kind of strict headmaster-like figure. He's not okay with me. And for him to be okay with me, I need to add some stuff. I need to make sure I read my Bible every day. I need to make sure I am giving to the church all the time. I need to make sure I'm on every serving team. I must turn up at church on time. I must all... And we start to add these things, which in and of themselves are not wrong disciplines. They're good disciplines, but we add them for all the wrong reasons. Because fundamentally... We don't actually really believe that Jesus is enough for us, right? And so the letter to the Galatian Christians is hugely relevant to us because actually we all are prone to the very things that they were beginning to believe. And Paul goes, that is not the gospel. You, if you believe that stuff, you have missed the gospel and you've missed the power of the gospel. You've missed how controversial the gospel is. You've missed it. And that's what this whole letter is about. So... We're going to read from uh, verse 8 of chapter 4. Now, some of this is a bit complex, but I will try and unpack it. We're going to focus particularly on this, the last bit of the, cha the chapter, but it's worth hanging in there because he says some really amazing stuff. So this is what he says, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, you followed idols. <laughs> but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. 
As you know, it was because of my illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed by you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born according to a result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. This is where it gets complicated. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. That's Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to this present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share any inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Everybody clear? (laughs) Great, let's go home. It's the kind of passage you kind of go, okay, let's do chapter five. Now, we live in the world that we're in the West, which is a very privileged world, really, of multiple options, possible things we could do, things we could spend our money on, things we could go and, you know, I, I probably said before, but in the UK especially, I think it's more in the UK than it is in the Netherlands, supermarkets are remarkably overwhelming places. Yeah, you go to a supermarket, Sarah occasionally would go, could you please go and buy these things? And I would literally stand for aisle, for hours looking at an aisle going, I don't know which type of shampoo to get. I don't know. There's like every potential possible, you know, type and flavor and animal. I don't know. Which one do I get? Strawberry, coconut? I don't know. I don't know. But there's just multiple options everywhere. You ring up a utilities firm and it's like you get the kind of, you, you get the automatic kind of response first don't you your your phone call is really important to us it doesn't feel that important but you get and then you get like seven or eight options of things you should press and obviously if you're learning dutch that is a particularly complex moment for those of us who are still learning dutch because it's like i have no idea which option to press so i'm just pressing whatever option comes i constantly press the wrong option and then i apologize to them that i've got the wrong option in it but there's just multiple options But what you read in the book of Galatians when it comes to how we relate to God is Paul basically says there's just two options. So it's not the world of multiple options. It's just two. Okay. The first option is basically the gospel of self-salvation. Yeah. Effectively, I live my life reliant on myself. I make my own plans. 
I try and earn my way. I try and make something of myself. I'm trying to self-save, in other words. And that's right at the root of all sin. Adam and Eve decide that they want to be God themselves. They decide they're not going to trust God anymore. They decide they're going to decide if they're going to eat from this or not. Effectively, they decide, actually, I, don't, I want to put myself in God's position. We're going to be in charge. They effectively decide to do their own thing. They begin, if you like, self-salvation, and it has horrible consequences for their lives. Everything starts to disintegrate from that moment in their own relationship, in their relationship with God, in their family. Everything starts to fall apart. It leads to huge brokenness and unhappiness. But there's, Paul is saying, look, there's the kind of self-reliance, earning it, trying to make something of your life approach, or... The other option is the gospel of surrender, where you come to the point of acknowledging you can't save yourself. You're not able to make something of your life. No matter what you do or how successful you become, you don't seem to be able to satisfy this deep longing in your soul. It doesn't matter how much money you pour into it. It's like it just doesn't seem to fix it. And Paul is going, there's two options. Either you go down this route of self-reliance, self-salvation, or you go down this route, which is the gospel of surrender. Just two ways. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, he finishes with the story of the two builders. He goes, there's two kind of houses you can build. One is on rock and one is on sand. The sand rock one is where you basically decide for yourself where you're going to build. You choose how you're going to live your own life. It's self-salvation. This one is you decide to trust and you go, I'm just going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to build everything on him. You don't get to choose. To, you don't get to live in between the two, basically. And that is why when Paul writes to the Galatians, he goes, this is no gospel at all. It's because you don't get a hybrid version. There's not one where you stand here and here at the same time. It doesn't exist. You added a bit of law into the faith. Basically, it's no gospel at all. You're building on sand. And that's what he's writing to them about gospel of self-salvation or the gospel of surrender and actually describes it doesn't it if you build here he says it's like weak and miserable is what he describes it as he says building that way living your life way he said you're just subscribing to weak and miserable forces in other words they will not deliver as advertised you know when you watch an advert on tv and you just kind of go that looks amazing i want to buy that product it's going to make me happy I'm going to be running along beaches. My hair's going to be bouncing and flowing behind me as I run. It's going to be sunny the whole time. If I have that thing, my life is going to be significantly better. And you buy that thing and surprise, surprise, it's not significantly better. Now you want to buy the next thing you saw. Why? Because it doesn't deliver as advertised. It does not give you what it's saying. And sin is attractive and there's a, a small moment of enjoyment. But basically, it never delivers as advertised. And Paul is going, that's, that's that route. That, if you go that route, it's weak and miserable in terms of what it gives you. It's not able to fulfill you, although it appears to advertise it can. So Paul is pleading with them, don't go that way. I don't know if you've ever spoken to kids who are about to make a decision that you're not happy with. And you ple- don't do this. I know what this is like. This is a very bad decision. And Paul is pleading with them, don't go that way. And last week, if you were here, we looked at the passage before where he basically says, look, Living under the law, going back to rules, living under the law, is he parallels it with Israel's history. And the history of Israel was, for, de- for centuries, they were in slavery in Egypt. And they were slaves living under somebody else's rule. 
And God sends Moses. Moses gets them out of under slavery, out from under Pharaoh, out of Egypt. And he says, look, going back to the law, going back to rules, putting yourself under that is like putting yourself back in slavery. That's exactly what it's like. And he's pleading with them, don't go back. Because going back under law is basically saying, if I add these things in, things will be better. God will accept me. What are you doing? Well, we're self-saving again. If I achieve this level of righteousness, if I achieve this level of discipline, if I read my Bible, this whatever it is we construct for ourselves as the mechanism by which we will climb the ladder, it is like self-salvation again. You are putting yourself back, not into life, but into slavery. It doesn't create life, it creates slavery. Because we always fall short, right? We're always disappointed, we're always condemned, because we can't do what we hope to do. Yeah? So where I grow up, New Year, people do New Year's resolutions. Anybody else ever do those? I mean, you know, like, I kind of have a love, love-hate relationship because I quite like the idea of new goals and new... I quite like that. I'm kind of prone to doing that kind of thing. It's not wrong in itself. But the problem is when it becomes like this ladder, if I do these things, I inevitably fail after about the first one and a half days or whatever it is by about January the 2nd or 3rd. I have not lived up to the standards I'd created, even though my standards are pretty moderate. And immediately I'm just under condemnation because I'm not the person I hope to be. Now, this passage, Paul presses the point even further. And he does so by teaching about some stuff that feels a bit confusing to us, right? Because he basically takes them back to a story, right back into Abraham's family. And Abraham, Abraham is like the father of Israel. If you're a Jew... Abraham is a very significant historical person to you, very important in the scriptures, right? He's the kind of, and the, the Jews would consider themselves the children of Abraham coming from his, his line, basically. And Paul says, right, I want to take you right back. Now, probably what they reckon is, he's, what he's doing there is countering arguments that the Judaizers are using with the Galatians. So these Jewish believers have come in and said, what you really need to be is you need to be a Jew. You really need to get in the people of God. So Paul goes, well, let me take you back then. And he kind of wants to counter the argument. He goes, okay, well, let's, okay, you want to go there? He's like, we'll go there. Because Paul knew his stuff, right? He was a, you know, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisee. He goes, okay, let's go back then. And he takes them right back to Abraham. He goes, let's talk about Hagar and Sarah. And, that's so, and so, now he doesn't unpack this, but all the Jews would have understood what Paul was doing here. So let me unpack it for you a little bit. Jews consider themselves to be the people of God, descendants of Abraham. In other words, that is their family line, their family inheritance. And Abraham is given a promise, many of you will know this, back in Genesis 12 and then 15, and then if you read through 15 to 20, you'll see this promise coming again and again. And he's given this promise, Abraham, I want you to leave where you are, I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you, and through you, I'm going to make a new family, a new nation, and it's going to bless all the nations of the world through you, Abraham. In fact, in Genesis 15, he says, actually, through your own flesh and blood, you will have an heir, and through your own flesh and blood, you will bless all the families of the world. (laughs) Now, that's an amazing promise. The problem is, Abraham is pretty old when this promise comes, and he's married to Sarah, who's also very old, past the age of child-rearing and childbirth. Not only that, but Sarah is unable to have children. So the promise comes to someone who is way too old to have kids, who's married to someone who's way too old, and she's, she's not able to have them anyway, even if she was young. 
So the promise comes to a situation which is completely impossible, humanly. And yet God says, no, no, I'm going to make you, through your own heir, into a great nation, a huge family. And if you know the story, they go, they move to the land that God shows them, but God doesn't seem to come through on his promise. Okay, there's no heir, no child is born, there's no pregnancy, nothing, no descendants. And yet God's spoken a promise. And sometimes that's how it feels for us, isn't it? We believe God's spoken to us. We have this sense of promise or something over our lives. And yet then for years, we live in the void of, uh, well, what was that about? Because I felt like God really spoke to me. But now I'm just living in this vacuum where God appears to not be honoring what he said he would honor. And I'm not saying, when I say that, I'm not just talking about a prophetic word that someone once gave you somewhere. I'm talking about a promise in scripture that you know God promises to be good to you and yet you go through this entire season where you kind of go, I don't see anything good here. And we live in the gap often of a sense of God spoken over our lives but then we can live for years and go, I don't see anything. You know, we don't live in constant sense of victory, do we? <laughs> yeah? If you if you if you're over the age of about 12, which I think we all are, we all understand that life is not always great all the time. Occasionally you go to churches where they'll just tell you being a Christian is great all the time. That's just not true. Sometimes we live in the gap between what God has promised to do and what we see him do. Yeah? And they are living in the gap. God speaks super clearly to them, like repeatedly, and then for, for years and years and years, nothing. No child no inheritance, and everything rests on a child, right? Everything, and there is nothing happening. So what do they do? They get tired of waiting, don't they? And Abraham and Sarah decide to take, if you like, take things into their own hands. They decide that if God is not going to come through, they will fix the problem themselves. That's what they're going to do. And Sarah comes up with this idea, and she goes, how about Hagar? Like, you could, you could be with her, and then, and then she can bear us a son. And we'll get, we'll get what God's saying, but we'll get it through her. And, that, and Abraham goes, oh, okay. He doesn't, he doesn't appear to resist this very clearly. He just seems to go along with it. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't know. I obviously, it wasn't there. But anyway, he, he goes along with the option, right? And she gets pregnant. And she gives birth to a son, Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the child of promise that God promises, Right? Ishmael is born from Hagar, who's a slave woman, a servant in the household. But she is not the child that God promised them. What are they doing? What they're doing is they're going, we will self-save then. We will, we will fix it ourselves then. Because God's not doing what we need him to do. So I'm gonna, we are going to fix the problem ourselves. Even though it's a remarkable supernatural promise that God gives Abraham and Sarah... And Abraham is held up as a man of great faith, okay? So it's just helpful for us to understand that, you know, this man of great faith decides, well, we'll fix it ourselves then. And Ishmael is born. And his birth, and then the process of him growing up, that is the beginning of all sorts of problems and difficulty in their lives, right? All sorts of tensions, all sorts of issues in their family. And that is often what happens with us if we slip back into believing Okay, I'm going to fix it myself. I'll find another route than God. It is often the birthplace for all sorts of challenges in our own lives. I'll, I'll fix it. 
I'll find a new route. And that doesn't quite fit with your promise, but maybe you're not going to come through on your promise because, to be honest, God, you've been a bit silent for quite a while, so I will fix it, and hopefully that's going to be okay with you. And it just births all kinds of problems. But in the story, the amazing thing is, it's not the end. So even though they decide to go their own way and they create all sorts of problems and challenges, it's not the end. God doesn't go, right, forget it. Okay, I'm out. You know, you've just done your own thing. You haven't trusted me. You haven't really believed me, even though I've shown up supernaturally and told you. You haven't really believed me. So, and, and you've just gone off and done your own thing and you've made a right mess of your family. God doesn't go, I'm out then. Actually, what happens is God appears to be not very put off by their behavior. He, he appears to be very committed to following through. Even though Abraham and Sarah decide to do their own thing, even though they appear to have given up hope themselves, even though they've become cynical and unbelieving, God keeps speaking to them. So you read through Genesis 16, 17, 18. There are moments in Genesis 17 and 18 where God shows up to Abraham, then he shows up to Abraham and Sarah and says, you know, the child I promised, I'm still going to do it, right? Well, do you know what Abraham does in Genesis 17? He laughs. He laughs at God. He doesn't, he's not laughing in a way of joy. He's laughing cynically like, yeah, right. Have you seen how old I am now? This is totally impossible. Genesis 18 is the same. Sarah goes away and she just laughs. She's, she mocks God. She's like, there's no chance. Both of them laugh. And yet God is still speaking and saying, no, 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 there is a child of promise coming. The thing I promised you, I'm going to do. I will do. And then Sarah miraculously, 14 years after Ishmael, Sarah miraculously becomes pregnant and Isaac is born. And Isaac's name means laughter. <laughs> Which is this beautiful, you know. And what you see is God doesn't appear to be particularly put off by the fact that they're quite cynical or too old. Like they, they don't appear to bring very much to this, right? They bring a bunch of failure. <laughs> There's some obedience mixed in there as well because they do at least move initially but there's a lot of doubting. There's a lot of questioning. There's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of mocking of God. There's a lot of doing their own thing. And God doesn't appear to be very put off. And Isaac is born, the child of promise, and he's called laughter. And the childless, barren woman gives birth to a promised son. Now, why does Paul go back to this story? Why in Galatians 4 does Paul go, I want to talk about Hagar and Sarah. Why does he do that? Well, because the Judaizers are teaching the Galatians, you're not enough as you are, right? Some of us believe the lie that we're not enough. We're just way more aware of all our own failings than all of his righteousness. All we can see is the stuff that we've kind of like got wrong, and we just can't see how good he is. And the Judaizers are showing up to the Galatians going, do you know, you're not enough. You're not enough. And because you're not enough, you need to add in a bunch of stuff. In fact, it's not, they're not just saying you're not enough. They're saying you are totally from the wrong line. Okay? Your, your entire history and your blood history and your family heritage is absolutely polluted. Right? Because you're not part of the promise. You're not part of the people of God. You know, only the Jews are part of the people. They're in Abraham's line. So the Judaizers are saying to the Gentiles, you're not enough. You come from the wrong family. You come from the wrong bloodline. You're polluted. 
There's nothing good that can come for that line. You are a child. You are effectively the Gentiles they consider to be children of Hagar. You are born out of the slave woman's descendants, not born out of promise. You're not part of Abraham and Sarah's line. You're part of Hagar's line. So your entire history is polluted. Therefore, it's good to be, have faith in Jesus. But the truth is, if you really want to be in, you've got to join in with the people of promise. So you have to shift. And if you want to shift, you've got to become Jewish. Therefore, you have to add some stuff in. Why? Because Jesus is not sufficient for people who are so polluted. That's what they're saying to them. And Paul says, well, no, no, that's not how it works. So he takes them right back. And this is what he says in verse 24. These things are to be taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery of her children. So Hagar's line is a line of slavery. It's true. But the Jerusalem that is from above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, Be glad, barren women, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. So Paul kind of goes, he does this, I read somebody's today, Oh, this week he said they do, he does like a judo flip on them. <laughs> he flips their argument. He goes, do you know what? You're right. Figuratively, Hagar and everybody born out of Hagar's line is basically a slave because they're born not out of a promise. They're born out of trying to self-save. Abraham and Sarah decide to fix themselves, self-reliant, self-salvation. Hagar, you're the answer. We'll have a child through you. In other words, that, that whole process is... A, is demonstrating this desire to fix ourselves. So he's saying, you're, not, you're right. Anybody born out of that line is about, is about self-salvation. It's not about salvation and surrender. It's about self-reliance. And Sarah is a different line. He said, you're right. Sarah gives birth to Isaac, the child of promise, the child of miraculous God intervention, this gift of grace into something which was humanly impossible. So Paul goes, it's true. There are two lines. There's Hagar's line and then there's Sarah's line. But then he flips it because he says, basically, you Jews, you consider yourselves to be children of the promise in Sarah's line. And you're telling them to come back under the law. But actually, you're not in her line at all. What he's saying is, you're part of Hagar's line. Because if you put yourself under the law, it's like saying, I need to self-save then. I need to do some additional things. And if you live like that, you're saying, I'm a child of the slave woman. But he's saying to the Galatians, because you've come to Jesus, and if you believe Jesus is enough, then you are miraculously born as children of the promise. And he flips it. He goes, you Jews, you believe that you're a child of the promised line under Sarah. But actually, if you put yourself under the law and don't come to Jesus, you're, child of, you're the children of a slave woman. You've been born into slavery, whereas believers, whether they're Christians, whether they're uh, Gentile believers or Jewish believers, if you believe Jesus is enough, if you believe in the miraculous intervention of God, if you believe grace is sufficient for you purely, you are born of Sarah's line. You are a child in Isaac's line. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are born in that line. Tim Keller puts it like this about the Jewish believers. Their heart and approach to God is like Abraham with Hagar, and the fruit in their lives is like Ishmael, just more slavery. Though racially they are from Sarah, in their soul and heart, 
They are like the people they despise. They rely on their own ability rather than on the supernatural grace of God. The most religious people can be the furthest from freedom. And when Jesus tells the story of the two sons, one who goes off into rebellion and one who stays at home, we read that story and go, well, the gunner's, gunner's got off in rebellion. That's terrible. And this one's the good one and he stayed at home. But Jesus is not making that point. He's saying you can rebel through license or you can rebel by being a religious bigot who thinks you can get yourself self-saved by obeying all the rules. Both of them are lost, in other words. Both of them are lost. So whilst the Galatians were considered outcasts from the wrong background, the wrong bloodline, the wrong heritage, the wrong past, when you look to and trust in Jesus alone, you become children of the promise. That's why he's saying so he completely flips the whole argument. You're not outside the people. You're in the people because you're born as children of the promise. Because you trusted in Jesus alone. Because you've given up trying to self-fix and self-save. So you're not in Hagar's line at all. You're in Sarah's line. That's who you are. What does this mean for us as we close? Three things I want to just say as we close. It means this, okay? There is only one way to relate to God that works, Right? only one way and that is simply to surrender and receive it is simply grace is the only way that works if you really want to follow Jesus you have to give up trying to fix your own stuff and you have to surrender and keep coming to him you have to get out from under the law and into grace there is only one way and grace is it from start to finish here's the second thing this is good news to everybody, but it is particularly good news to anybody who considers themselves barren. Okay? What I mean by that is anybody who thinks about their own lives as being fruitless. You look at your own life and you think, there's nothing good. I've produced nothing good in my life. I've not been successful. It's been fruitless. It feels empty. And this passage is particularly good news to any of us who consider ourselves fruitless. Because that, he reads, he reads, Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah 54. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now that prophecy was originally given to Israel when they were in exile in Babylon. In other words... They were a nation who thought my entire, all our national identity is gone. All the plans are gone. Everything's empty. Everything's gone. And Isaiah prophesies, be glad, because actually fruitfulness is going to come. Right? But it's also a reference to Hagar and Sarah. Because God looks at those two women. One is young and fertile and beautiful. One is too old and is barren. And God chooses to bring the promise through the one who's too old and who's barren. The gospel is for people who understand they are barren. Right? Yes, that means we have to receive it like that. We get to the point of realizing we cannot do ourselves. That's part of becoming a Christian, is going, I can't self-fix. I, I need you, God. That's part of it. But also, I believe the gospel is particularly good news for those of us who look at our lives and our history and our bloodline and we go, Man, can anything good come out of my life? The gospel of people who think their lives have been failures, who are disappointed by their lives. 
if you consider your life to have been a huge disappointment, you are in the right place. Because the gospel is very good news for those of us who look at our lives at times and go, I'm disappointed. Because the promise is God can take fruitless lives and redeem them and make them very fruitful. Jesus says in John, doesn't he, you didn't choose me. (laughs) You think you chose me, but you didn't choose me. I chose you. And then he says, and I've appointed you to go and bear much fruit. That's, if you like, you didn't choose me to make yourself fruitful. He's like, I chose you. And the point is to make you fruitful. Finally, third thing. When it comes to doubting that God can do these things, when it comes to doubting, can God take a disappointed life and make it far more fruitful? I want you to notice this. God is far more interested in fulfilling his word than we are in seeing him fulfill his word. God promises to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. It's going to come through your own flesh and blood. There's a promise coming. Right, but they, on several occasions, they try. They appear to try and blow it up. <laughs> they do everything they can, seemingly, to mess it up, and yet God appears to be completely committed to seeing it through. And it's interesting. Earlier in Galatians four, Paul says, he says to the Galatians, "You know God." In fact, then he corrects and says, and "says actually, or rather, you are known by God." And there's that little shift. He goes, no, no, you do know God, but actually you're known by God. Which I love, because what it's saying is this, is that, yes, the gospel is in part us coming to know God. But we see in part, we know in part, we're fragile, we're human, we get it wrong, we kind of see through a glass darkly. You know, we kind of know God, but we don't know him. And, but actually, the emphasis of the gospel is he knows you and he knows me. And what that means is not he knows about you, he knows your name, although God does know our names. What it's saying is, no, no, he knows you. It's a a far more intimate word. You are known, in other words. Yeah, I know him. No, 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 but you're known. It's a picture, if you like, of God's utter commitment to you. And a picture of his utter commitment to me that he's going to see it through. Abraham and Sarah tried their utmost to blow it up. They did their own thing. They try and find their own solution. They laugh. They doubt. They're cynical. They give up hope. God seems to have disappeared. How's God ever going to do what he's promised? And yet God follows it through and he's utterly committed to what he says he's going to do. He knows them. And he knows you. Yeah, we sometimes think he's... His approach to us is dependent on our approach to him. When we think like that, we're putting us back into self-reliance because it's dependent on how well I do, that maybe God will bless me if I do these things. No, 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 no. He's saying, yeah, you know him, but he knows you. (laughs) That's the emphasis. And the gospel is incredibly good news because it's not about how well you know him. It's about how well he knows you. And it seems to me he is utterly and totally committed to honouring his word. You know, we, we, we say things like, oh yeah, God's faithful, God's true to his... No, 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 yeah, yeah, he is. But you need to understand what that means is he's going to follow through what he says he's going to do. 
regardless of whether you're cynical or whether you doubt, whether you question, whether you go off and do your own thing for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. And God's like, come on, come on, come on, come back, come back, come back, come back. I have more for you. And what he promises, he does. Yes, there's a big pause, right? And we live in the gap a lot. But the good news is, he's way more committed to you than you are to him. <laughs> it's just, it's so good, right? I mean, it is so good. Because if we live in the, if we live with the lie that his commitment to me is dependent on my commitment to him, then we're in trouble, right? Because we can barely be committed to him this afternoon, let alone June. Like, we're just like, we just wander off and do our own thing. Yeah, but if we live in the truth that he's so committed to us, that he will keep drawing me home. That is unbelievably good news. And some of us live with the lie that he's good to me if I'm good to him. No, 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 you're known. Yeah, you know him, but you're known. And that is a completely different place to live. Why don't we stand?